Turn to Acts 4. Today we'll look at 4.32 through 5.11. Let's pray. Our Lord, may your word feed your sheep. In the name of the great shepherd, amen. amen. Let's stand for the reading of God's word, Acts 4:32 through 5:11. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph, who was also called called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property and with his wife's knowledge he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? For while it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last, and great fear came upon all who heard of it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. And after an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the Holy Spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. Amen. This is God's word. You may be seated. What comes to mind for you when I say the word gospel or good news? I think if we were to take a poll of Christianity at large, it would probably be a fairly narrow picture. 
that was presented. Maybe something along the lines of the four spiritual laws, gospel presentation, or the Romans road. That bit of the gospel that, that we try to explain to unbelievers. Our writer, Luke, the historian, picks up on something that Jesus says, and he includes it both in Luke and in Acts four separate times. And it's the concept of the good news of the kingdom of God. The gospel of the kingdom of God. He even records Jesus saying, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God, for I was sent for this purpose. So in your concept of the gospel, how much does the kingdom of God factor in? The good news of the kingdom of God. As a mass of humanity, we're always kind of being churned up by the ebb and flow of our earthly kingdoms. Uh, Leaders promise a new and better way. Sometimes they come through for a season, perhaps a few thousand years like the Roman Empire. Other kingdoms are crushed by those empires. Some kingdoms, some some leaders offer great promise only to fall well short. We could think of Adolf Hitler who (laughs) deceived a nation and murdered thousands in the process and then the whole edifice came crumbling down. So there are many ebbs and flows of kingdoms on the earth. The good news of the kingdom of God offers great promise, even eternal promise. Jesus told the apostles that not even the gates of hell would prevail against his church. He would build it and all authority in heaven and on earth are given to him and he would be with us to the end of the age. That's great, great promise. But what confidence should we have that the good news of such a kingdom is true? That the promise will pay off when all other promises of great kingdoms have fallen short. Believe it or not, I think this strange and difficult story is meant to give us some of that confidence. Because we see King Jesus advancing his kingdom by the power of the Holy Spirit through his people. Despite stiff opposition. The forces of evil employ ferocious and direct attacks like we read in Acts 4 only weeks ago about the Sanhedrin attacking them directly. But also, as we see in this passage, subtle attempts to destabilize the kingdom from the inside. So this story should give us confidence that Christ's kingdom will prevail. Because we see him bringing her through these attacks and really with flying colors. Neither the the rain of bullets from the enemies, the the bursting of shells, or the sabotage from the inside will prevent Jesus here from driving his pilings deep into the bedrock for the church. As he continues to build, we stand on that same foundation, those same pilings. And we can keep laboring in his kingdom, confident that he will press on victorious until every brick and tile is laid and, and the steeple and the cross is on top for everybody to see. So we'll break this message into two parts. First, finishing up chapter 4, Christ's grace in external opposition. Christ's grace in external opposition. And second, Christ's grace in internal opposition. 
So Christ's grace and external opposition. Remember back from chapter 4, the Apostle Peter and John find themselves in trouble with the Jewish authorities. They heal the lame man, they preach Christ, and then the authorities arrest them and, and demand that they not preach anymore in the name of Jesus. That's direct opposition. So the very, very Sanhedrin itself, the men these, these apostles looked up to, are now telling them, don't preach in the name of the Messiah. And yet, Jesus' church presses on with extraordinary resolve, health, and morale. In verses 32 through 37, here we see the answer to prayer. Because after they were threatened, they got back together with the church and prayed, prayed scripturally, prayed for boldness. And here Jesus grants boldness and health to his church. So in 32 through 37, we see these spiritual fruits as an answer to prayer. First, we see unity in verse 32. The full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. Unity. Second, we see extreme generosity and selflessness within the community of believers. No one is in need in the community. The community is providing for itself. And third, we see the powerful proclamation of the gospel. Luke sums it all up by saying, great grace was upon them all. At this point, Luke introduces an important, important character in the narrative of Acts. Joseph, named by the apostles, perhaps a nickname, some suggest Barnabas, son of encouragement. My dad wanted to name me Barnabas. My mom wouldn't let him. <laughs> we had a Shih Tzu in high school that my dad got to name Barnabas. <laughs> This man, Barnabas, fairly wealthy, he sells his property and he comes and lays the money at the apostles' feet. And when it says that, that no one said anything belonged to him or, or that everything was in common, it doesn't mean that they kind of put everything they had into a community pot and then equally dispersed it among themselves, which some would like to suggest. But in fact, it was laid at the apostles' feet. It was handled with wisdom and discretion. It was, they said, distributed as any had need. Now, isn't what is described in these verses kind of an ideal, like something we would all look to, to have in a church, to strive for in a church? Unity, the body moving forward with one mind taking mutual care of one another, the powerful proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. These are ideals that we all look for. If we do want these things, we need to remember that they are spiritual things. They are spiritual blessings. Answers to prayer in this passage. So we then have to come together and seek the Lord in prayer, pleading for spiritual blessings. We also have to remember, likewise, to prioritize the kingdom, to seek first the kingdom. We see here that the saints are banding together. They're laying down their own agendas and their own property because the, the battle that's being waged is greater than any of their own personal agendas or problems. The kind of extreme generosity and selflessness that we see here is, is 
only that kind which arises when, when we see that the bigger picture is more important than our individual property or possessions. A feeble uh, kingdom will crumble at the first sign of intense external pressure. But the fact that this community is not crumbling, and in fact they're absolutely thriving, is a sign that this kingdom, this community, has legs. It's going to keep going. There's something real here. There's something binding this community together, powerfully propelling it forward. And of course, that thing is the Lord Jesus Christ on his throne, powerfully working through his spirit and through his people for his glory. Now we'll turn to chapter 5 and Christ's great grace in, in internal pressure. Now, in your own observation, how often do you see the world gaining victory by direct external pressure I would say never almost never I mean sure it clamps down and it squeezes like a sponge squeezes out all that is not the true material of the church which actually serves to serves the church it serves the purity of the church external pressure also seems to strengthen our resolve You probably remember when that famous video came out of of, um, the terrorists beheading the Christians on the beach. And I remember, I don't remember where I heard it, but I remember one of the wives saying, we weren't praying that they'd come back. That would mean they had rejected the faith. They, They said we would have been ashamed. We were praying that they would stay strong. That's the kind of resolve that external pressure gives to the true church of Jesus Christ. But Satan likes to creep in and he likes to work through slow corrosion from the inside. Or perhaps sometimes an explosive internal conflict. Satan loves to work from the inside. That's why Peter asks Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? Daryl Bach comments that cosmic forces are very interested in what happens in God's church. Some for ill and some others for good. Isn't that amazing? Even this little room here in little Newcastle, Colorado, cosmic forces are very interested in Christ's church. Amen. Some for good and some for ill. Here in this passage, the little growing community of people connected around this man, Jesus Christ, is the locus of the most vicious cosmic battle, spiritual battle. Satan has mounted his forces against the church in a direct attack and failed. And now he goes and he turns to espionage and subterfuge. He goes on the inside. And he knows right where to attack. Man's soft underbelly. Pride. Pride is manifested in two ways in this story. First, the love of the praise of man. And second, a low view of the fear of the Lord or the holiness of the Lord. Satan gets the better of the sinful hearts of Ananias and Sapphira by appealing to their desire to look good. Extreme generosity looks really good. Selling your property 
for the poor looks really good. Self-sacrifice looks really good. That's why the Pharisees love to parade themselves. That's why Jesus said, don't let your right hand know what your left hand is doing. You can imagine what it might have felt like. Ananias and Sapphira were clearly wealthy. There was a very small percentage of landowners at that time. Sapphira apparently is a name that usually more wealthy women had. So they they see these people doing these amazing things. People well off, selling everything they have and giving it away for the kingdom. And and you can kind of picture what's going on in their heads. Should should we sell ours? If we don't, how are we going to look? And Joseph did it, and and the apostles loved him. They even gave him a nickname. (laughs) But they'd sold their property, and they sold it not because they were seeking first the kingdom. In effect, they were trying to buy the praise of men. Now, mind you, the point of this passage is definitely not... You should sell all your stuff or you're a terrible Christian. The problem was not that they held back some of the money. In fact, Peter says, while it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? The problem is they presented part of it as the whole. And it just wouldn't have looked good if they had kept a little for themselves and folks knew about it. It wouldn't have looked as good. So they lied. They were dishonest. Now, Peter was keeping up with the real estate market. He caught them. He probably received a revelation from the Spirit. And he exposed the hypocrisy of their hearts. He says, you have not lied to man, but to God. And that's the real issue, isn't it? I mean, truth be told, we all share the hypocrisy of Ananias and Sapphira. We don't want people to know what we're really like. The kinds of things we're really serving, the actual motives of our hearts. We're so concerned with what men think that we forget that we stand naked before the one person we should be most interested in serving. Now, what follows has got to be one of the most bizarre events in the New Testament or in the Bible. I'll just read it and just listen to how Luke describes what happened. When Ananias, beginning in verse 5, when Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard of it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. After an interval, interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened, And Peter said to her, Tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she she said, Yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, How is it that you have agreed together to test the Spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard these things. Why is God so harsh here? 
That's the question that comes to our minds, isn't it? And, and why does Peter come across so cold? And why are the burials sort of just non-ceremonial and no families involved? Why, why doesn't Peter say, look, you, you messed up, but hey, we're all hypocrites here, and let he who is without sin cast the first stone. Why doesn't he treat why why doesn't God treat all similar hypocrisy with the same harshness? In other words, all these questions, what's the point here? Why did this happen? Why does Luke include it in his gospel of Acts, if you will? Well, I see three purposes in this story at least. I have to see three as a Presbyterian. <laughs> The most obvious point as a preacher, and the one that I'm sure has been beaten to death by thousands of preachers, and it's one that's easy to preach, also one that's easy to abuse, is example. This is an example. It it is, be like uh, Barnabas, not like Ananias and Sapphira. (laughs) It's the kind of application that is so misused that I hesitate to bring it up. However, I do think there is something there for us, some example. Luke intentionally contrasts these two, Barnabas and Ananias and Sapphira. He could have just spoken about Ananias and Sapphira, but he chose to include the positive example. And we are told the Lord loves a cheerful giver. The the pouring out of ourselves, of our resources, of our time, of our gifts... These things are consistently commended in Scripture, not because they're things that we cash in for the favor of the Lord. Instead, it's because in Christ, by the power of the Holy Spirit, we're beginning to see the great value of seeking first the kingdom of God. We're starting to see that no matter how extravagant our generosity, King Jesus will still take care of us. And we're starting to develop a profound love for his little ones so so that their well-being is more important than our own. So indeed, if we're growing in Christ-likeness, we should be progressively less and less like Ananias and more like Barnabas. That is true. The second reason I see for this story is precedent, what I'm calling precedent. Throughout history, God really, truly exercises extraordinary forbearance. From time to time, he puts on a display of just how seriously he takes sin. Often to set a precedent. At least we take his forbearance for granted. Now, if the first question that flares up within, within our hearts when we hear such stories is, why is God so harsh? We should throw water on that fire by asking Why is God so patient with me? Was God just to kill Uzzah for touching the ark? Or to have Achan and his family devoted to destruction for stealing from the loot of Jericho? Or in a very similar story to ours, when Israel was struggling as a fledgling nation in the wilderness, Nadab and Abihu transgressed the commandments of God, that he gave them for how to live holy lives before him and how to worship him. They offered strange fire, unauthorized fire, and he consumed them with fire. Was that just? 
Not only was that just, but he was setting a precedent. It's almost as if to say, oh, young nation of Israel. Oh, my covenant of covenant people, take note of my holiness. I will be worshipped as I will be worshipped. You will be holy as I am holy. Calvin says about this passage in Acts 5 that this was the Lord's purpose by punishing one to make the rest afraid, that they might reverently beware of all hypocrisy, that which Luke saith that they feared does not appertain unto us also, doth appertain to us also. For God meant to give all ages a lesson at that time, that they might learn to deal sincerely and uprightly with him. So do, do we not harbor the same hypocrisy of Ananias and Sapphira? Do we not see something of Uzzah and Nadab and Abihu within our own hearts? And yet God does not strike us down. What a grace that reminder is. How often are optics our first priority? We do wear the mask of hypocrisy. The face of charity on the surface, faces of anger, lust, and greed underneath. We profess God's omniscience and His omnipotence, but by our lives expose the God complex within our own hearts. We actually believe we can deceive God. Like our father Adam and our mother Eve, we grab at the power to declare right from wrong for ourselves. And those sins, those sins are the nails that pinned Jesus to the greatest display of how seriously God takes sin. God, in supreme grace and mercy, poured out the fullness of his wrath for our hypocritical pride on the man who did all good things from a pure, untainted heart, the spotless lamb, his own son. You realize that the forbearance he shows to us is because he took his wrath out on Jesus. He doesn't just leave it hanging out there unjustified. So this story sets a precedent for the people of God going forward. It reminds us, do not spit upon the cross of Christ. Do not trample it underfoot. God's people are to be a holy people. Be holy, for I am holy. Romans 6, very familiar. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make it obey to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. So the first purpose of this event was example. The second was precedent that Christ's people are to be a holy people. And the third purpose for this story, I believe, is the fear of the Lord, to tell us about an appropriate fear of the Lord. The world today and even the church today does not have an appropriate fear of the Lord. The water in which we swim and thus we're wet all over because no one swims through life in a dry suit. We, we are influenced by our culture. It is one of, of confusion about judgment 
and a feeble apprehension of the holiness of God and the fear of the Lord. I've been reading Calvin Miller's book on preaching, and he has this to say about our society's understanding of sin. He says, Sin has been redefined as sociology run amok. Most evangelicals are still sweltering under old definitions of the subject. Legalisms like no dancing and no canasta still linger among older faithful, while sleeping around lies more central among young singles who want to define sin more tolerantly. Most who have lived through the lost decades of evangelicalism agree that our legalistic petulance needed to go. Still, as we lost our nitpicking definitions of sin, the general conscience seemed to go with it. We are all lamenting whatever happened to sin. For all practical purposes that has disappeared from the self-congratulating millennium we have just entered. There may or may not be sin, but the question is prosaic. And frankly, contemporary sinners find little interest in the subject and find the whole idea a drag on their self-esteem. <laughs> not a phenomenal paragraph. <laughs> it's true. As believers, par- part of our posture toward our holy God ought to be to tremble in His presence. If you don't believe that, if your heart questions that as a Christian you should tremble in the presence of God, let me encourage you by telling you your heart is wrong. The first two purposes of this story that I gave you, example and precedent, are deductions, I believe, appropriate ones. But this third one is drawn directly and emphatically from the language of the text itself, both times after the death and burial accounts. In verse 5, we read, When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last And great fear came upon all who heard it. And again, after the death of Sapphira, 10 through 11, immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. So surely we can all agree that the world should fear God. They should run and hide in rocks and caves. They should flee for their very lives. But but for us, God is our benevolent Father, is He not? And indeed He is. And the Apostle Peter says that very fact that He is our Father should actually move us toward reverent fear, not away from it. In 1 Peter 5 or 1, 15 through 17, he says, But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially, according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear. If you call on him as father, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. Paul says that judgment begins at the household of God. The mighty acts of God in the wilderness caused the nations and the cities of Canaan to tremble in fear. But did he not also get their attention when he swallowed up Korah and his family? What if thinking of the fear of the Lord 
if, if we start to think of it in positive terms rather than negative, I feel like oftentimes we don't delight in the fear of the Lord. Our message sounds like, I have bad news and I have good news. Which do you want first? The bad news is God is holy and you've transgressed His law. The good news is Jesus died to atone for your sin. What if we delighted in the fear of the Lord? What if we began to say, I have good news. God, knew, God is holy, holy, holy. That's good news. He is good itself. He will never do wrong. He will never mistake. He, he, he will never do you or me any injustice. He is perfection personified. In His marvelous holiness, He will never let a wrong go unpunished. Every wrong done against you will be rectified. That's good news. And He has fixed a day in which He will judge the world in righteousness by a man He raised from the dead, the Lord Jesus Christ. And good news upon good news, He calls you and me and everyone everywhere to repent and to believe in Him and to receive forgiveness for our sins. And He gives us new life to live holy and reverent lives before Him, in His presence, not as slaves, but as children. Isn't that all wonderful news? The whole thing, the holiness of God, the justice of God, and the grace of God. Now I'm aware everything I just said is is like preacher talk. We don't talk like that in in the day-to-day. But what if we, in in our heart posture, believe that? What if that were a driving force behind our lives? What what if we were delighted in the fear of the Lord? Is that a weird way to talk? Delight in the fear of the Lord? The Bible doesn't think so. Nehemiah 1.11 O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and the prayer of your servants who delight to fear in your name. So the fear of the Lord should bring horror to the heart of the unbeliever, but delight to the heart of the Christian. For the Christian delights in all that God is. His holiness inspires awe. His justice yields peace and respect. His kindness produces humility and His grace gratefulness. So, to to be a people who delights in the verse that says, The Lord, the Lord a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, without also forgetting the part that says, and who will by no means clear the guilty. So the purposes of this story, example, precedent, and the holy fear of the Lord, serve to establish Christ's kingdom even further. By it, the kingdom is galvanized against Satan's attempt to corrode the holiness of the people of God or the fear of the Lord. Instead, it kind of backfires on Satan. We're inspired to delight in holiness, in self-sacrifice, in daily putting to death our own hypocrisy. We begin to delight in the very holiness and justice of God, and we tremble in holy fear even as we enjoy His fatherly presence. Because Jesus is building for himself a temple of living stones, establishing a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, 
a people for his own possession, that we may proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. That is the good news of the kingdom of God. Amen.